Welcome to week two of our new series called Love Has Called My Name, and uh, it's going to take us through the rest of the spring on into the summer. <coughs> Excuse me. Next week, we'll begin an in-depth look at the book of Galatians uh, and look at how the gospel both calls us into God's kingdom and then casts us out into the world to be an agent of healing. But this morning, we've got a little bit of work to do to finish what we started last week, and so we're looking uh, at 2 Kings chapter 5, the second half of the chapter. The title of this message is called The Outsider. The traitor and the slave. Let's look at 2 Kings chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, and then 15 on in through the rest of the chapter. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken a captive, a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. The name and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. So please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Rimon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elisha said. After Naaman had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, but not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I will run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman. When Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right, he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say... Two young men from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and, and two sets of clothing. Uh, by all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent them in away and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, where have you been, Gehazi? A servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves and vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves? Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. And that's God's word this morning. So this morning, again, we, live, we pick up where we left off last week. And for those who are just joining us, here is where we are. Last week, we met Naaman, the commander-in-chief of the armies of Aram, which is modern-day Syria. He was the least likely person to probably ever encounter the God of the Bible in the Old Testament. Uh, and, of course, he was a, a, an amazing man. He was fabulously wealthy, uh, incredibly popular, had done military exploits in his land. In other words... In a kind of a way, he was like the typical American, maybe even Austinite. He was successful, educated, and not really prone to believing in the God of the Bible. No one, as a matter of fact, that Naaman knew, can you get the picture? No one Naaman knew believed in the God of the Bible, let alone any intelligent 
or successful person that he knew. He and all his friends, all his nation were much like our nation today. Pluralistic, believing in whatever God or gods you sort of want to, whatever works for you in a sense. But in a dramatic turn of events, as we saw, Naaman gets a life-threatening illness. He humbles himself. He goes to Israel, uh, the least likely place he would ever go for his healing. It was a nation his nation was at war with. He meets Elisha the prophet. He's miraculously healed by a god he didn't even believe existed. And as a result, he gives his trust in his heart to the God of the Bible. And the rest of the chapter, which is what we're going to look at this morning, is essentially an extended epilogue between two characters. It's a study in contrast between Naaman, as we saw, and Gehazi, the servant of Elisha. Naaman was a pagan outsider, right? Gehazi was a religious insider. One was a person with no church background, no spiritual pedigree, never even heard of the God of the Bible, perhaps. And yet he finds the grace of God. The other was a man at the center of the greatest thing God was doing on the earth in his day. And yet he missed it. Yet he missed it. He had every spiritual advantage possible, but his heart went dark. And these two characters, taken together, show us what a heart looks like that has met God, and shows us what a heart looks like that has missed God. So, how can you tell if you've really met God? How can you tell where and if that you have missed Him? Well, this passage shows us how. So this morning, let's look at these two characters, plus one more that in the end actually unlocks the passage for us and shows us how we can meet the God of the Bible in the first place. Let's look this morning, these three characters. First, the outsider, second, the traitor, and finally, the slave. It's beginning number one, look at the outcast, and again, pick up right where we left off last week. After Naaman uh, obeys the word of the prophet, he goes and washes in the Jordan River. His body that was racked with leprosy is miraculously cured. He comes out healed, and this is what Naaman did, and this is what Naaman said next. It says, he went back to the man of God. He walked back. Then he stood before him and said, now I know there's no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. Now, in this one little marvelous statement here, Naaman's going to show us three marks or three characteristics of a heart that's really encountered the grace of God. All right, so let's look at him. What's changed about Naaman? First, it's his attitude towards simply faith. It's his attitude towards faith. Look at what he doesn't say here. He doesn't say, now I know that this is a God too, right? That, you know, he sort of exists also. He's just one more God. It's fine that this God, you know, he sort of works for you. No. Naaman, uh, the, the religious relativist, right? The one who has worked, uh, excuse me, well, formerly believed in, in many ways to God. Now he says, there's only one God, right? Naaman makes an exclusive truth claim. Now you may say, well, you know, Morgan, he was kind of a superstitious figure uh, from antiquity, sort of easily fooled and easily duped into believing something. And he, and he lived a long time ago, you know. Now, he did live a long time ago. Whether or not he was superstitious, we may or may not know. But the fact that he lived then and you live now doesn't make you smarter than him or him less intelligent than you. By that logic, you, we are all smarter than Einstein, Copernicus, 
Newton, Augustine, all these men put together. Uh, you're smarter than them just because you're breathing and sucking air today, see. See, that line of thinking is actually called chronological snobbery. And it's the coward's way out of dealing with what's happened in this passage. See, for a pagan, wealthy, successful, educated, and committed polytheist like Naaman to say there's only one God, the God of the Bible, is as unlikely as perhaps, you know, Penn and Teller, uh, Richard Dawkins, or, or Bill Maher, or anybody else that you don't think is likely to come to faith, come to faith. So what happened? Well, I'll tell you. It's not because Naaman switched his brain off It's because he actually switched it on. Look at what he says. He says, now I know. This word in the Hebrew means to perceive, to understand, to intellectually grasp. See, on his way back from the river, it was a walk, Naaman's been doing some thinking. He's been doing some thinking. And his thinking has been leading him to faith. You say, well, it was because a miracle happened to him, right? And if I saw a miracle, I'd believe too. Not necessarily, What about Gehazi? Gehazi saw the miracle too, and his heart and mind weren't changed. The point is, many people think, I've got to see something or feel something before I believe. I've got to have some kind of mystical experience before I give my life to God. Listen, those things are amazing, and they do happen in spades on planet Earth today. But if you're thinking that thinking isn't a vital component of true faith, well, that's just not biblical. See, Naaman's saying here, my thinking... And my understanding, based on the evidence of what I've seen, are leading me now to faith in the one true God. Of course, consider uh, the case study of one of the great thinkers uh, and writers of the 20th century, C.S. Lewis. It wasn't not thinking that led him to faith. What was it? Oh, it was his thinking, right? He, he, he came to Christ and he admitted after years of being an atheist this one thought. He wrote, that says, the night on the night that I gave my life to God, he said, I went to bed the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. <laughs> the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. What was he saying? He's saying, now I know. Now I know. Now I understand. Now I get it that if this God is real, if he's really real and really true, everything in my life has to change. I adjust to him. God doesn't adjust to me. See, the evidence caused Lewis to believe, and Naaman started putting faith and thinking together. And you can see this especially when in a minute he talks about how he's going to live out his faith essentially on his job with the temple and all his master and all that. Let me ask you, is thinking... Is thinking a part of your relationship with God? It can be. Actually, it should be. So what else changed? Well, first, not just his attitude towards faith, but also his attitude toward his possessions. Look at what he says next. He says, so please accept a gift. Now, what's this? Of course, if you remember last week, uh, you remember that Naaman showed up with literally millions uh, of dollars in his chariot. And some scholars estimate that what Naaman showed up with was actually more money than existed in the entire nation of Israel at the time. It's amazing. It's quite an amount. Why did he bring it? Well, to buy his blessing. That's what he came there for with it. Uh, he came there to hammer out a deal for his healing. But he comes to realize that his money's no good with God, right? Uh, it might as well be monopoly money for all God cares. But he offers it again here. Why? Why does he offer it again? I'll tell you what it can't be. It can't be because Naaman is trying to buy a blessing. He's already got it. 
It can't be to get a healing, right? He's already healed. It can't be to get God to accept him. He's already been accepted. So why is he giving it? Well, not to get healed, blessed, or accepted, but because, because he's been healed, blessed, and accepted. And this is a theme throughout the Bible. Those who have been deeply touched by the grace of God just start begging to give their money and possessions away. Look at the case study of Zacchaeus, Luke 19, if you want to go further. Why do you do this? Well, when you give, you show that God has been, excuse me, has become your source of blessing, healing, and acceptance. And when you can't give... You can't financially sacrifice. You're showing that money is still your source of blessing, healing, and acceptance. Listen, it's always one or the other, which is why Jesus himself says, you cannot serve both God and money. Naaman, he's been using his money to try to get a blessing. Now he's using it to be a blessing, to be a blessing. He used to spend his money, right? Try to spend it to get acceptance from God. Now he's using it. Now he's spending it out of a heart that's been accepted by God. Naaman shows us that if the grace of God has truly touched your heart, you're going to be a financially generous person. Number three, finally, his attitude towards others changed. And look at what we see this in what he called Elisha. He says, please accept a gift from who? From your servant, right? Uh, he calls himself a servant. Now, you may think this is sort of old-fashioned, you know, ancient groveling, but no. His attitude towards Elisha was changed because before this, what was his attitude? And he was hot. He was offended. He had walked away in a rage. Well, what didn't he like? What was he offended by? He didn't like that Elisha told him to go wash in what? The Jordan River. What's so significant about the Jordan River? Well, the Jordan River in the Bible was the boundary to the nation of Israel. The Jordan River is not a picture of water baptism like the Red Sea is. The Jordan River is the entrance to a new land and a new people. And by telling Naaman to go down and wash in that river to the river of a people he once disdained, Elisha is forcing Naaman to publicly identify with God's chosen people. Elisha is forcing him to do this. And of course, Naaman balks at it. Maybe it's because there's you know, some racism in his heart. Maybe it's years of warfare that's hardened him to this people. Maybe it's just because those people are different than him. But God was saying, go down and wash in the river of those people. Of those people. And listen, let's not judge him too harshly. We do the same after all. Don't we say, God, uh, you're saying, I've got to go down and wash in the rivers of those people at that church, <laughs> that church, go in and get neck deep, even over my head with that group of Christians, with the church. Naaman's thinking, man, aren't the rivers, right? Aren't the rivers of my own people and own nation good enough? He's thinking, if it's about getting in a river, God, there's a better river somewhere else. Well, we say, man, if church is supposed to be about being with people that I like, there's some of the people I like a little better, Right? God says, no, no, it's not about being in a river. It's not about being with people you even like all the time. It's about being in the place that will restore what sin has eaten from you. It's about doing the things that will make you clean and enable you to be with others. What was leprosy? It was a means of spiritual alienation. It made a person unclean, 
unable to be with the covenant people of God. What cured him? Taking off his armor, stripping himself down, becoming vulnerable and visible to everyone around him, and identifying with that place. Oh, there is blessing, church. There is healing and victory in being settled in the place God has for you. But you're going to have to wade through the muddy waters of other people to get there. You're going to have to, you know, actually go to the membership class and not just say, I'll do it next quarter because it's coming around the mountain when she comes again. You're going to have to commit, and hear this, be faithful in your community group. Be faithful. You're going to have to open up your life. Disclose what's really going on in your marriage. What are those things? It's washing in the Jordan, right? And we don't like that. Because Naaman wanted to do uh, what what we, as the average American uh, Christian wants to do. Here's what the average American Christian wants to do. We want to roll up the church in our chariot. Maybe have some friends with us. Get out. Have Come in. Have the pastor wave his hand over us. Pronounce the blessing. Give us the word. And then go on back home to our life. Right? And make all we think. He's going to make all our problems go away. No, no, no. But what will you do when the word of the Lord comes and asks you to do the most humbling thing possible? Go be a part of that people. Again. And again. And again. See, how many times did it take Naaman to get healed? Not just once, right? Seven times. Seven is the number of completion in the Bible. In other words, God, how many times do I have to go until you're healed? God, how many times do I have to forgive my brother until it doesn't bother you anymore? (laughs) How many times do I have to get over it until you're not even offended in the first place? See, until you are cleansed. See, the muddy waters of a God-ordained relationship are where God calls us to go to be cleansed of the things that nothing else can heal. And it worked in Naaman's life over and over again. He went down, he came up, went down and came up until he was so thoroughly drenched in the waters of God's people. His uncleanness went away. Naaman's life, his attitude towards faith, his possessions, and others had been revolutionized by the grace of God. Have yours, have yours. Now let's flip the coin over. Look at the contrasting character in the story. The character, everybody's favorite, yours and mine, the person of Gehazi. Gehazi. And number two, let's look at the traitor. Uh Uh-oh. Who was he? Gehazi was likely an up-and-coming prophet in Israel. He's sort of Elisha's understudy, or perhaps one of many understudies. Elisha had a sort of school, a company of prophets there. He would have been schooled in the Bible. Uh, Elisha, excuse me, yeah, Gehazi, that is, would have been exposed to the presence of God, familiar with the Bible. Uh, And here he is at the center of something incredible. But unlike Naaman, who's on his way up, Gehazi's heart is on its way down. Why is this? Well, first of all, again, let's pull back and consider what's happening. The head of the Syrian government had just come to faith in the one true God. He offers Elisha a gift, right? A thank you for what's happened to him, but Elisha refuses. Why? Well, not because it's ever wrong for someone, a minister, a prophet, any Christian follower of God to receive a gift at some point, all right? Otherwise, we have to ban Christmas. But he refuses. Here's what he refuses. He refuses on these grounds later to Gehazi. Here's what he says. He says, is this the time? Is this the time? to take money, or to accept clothes. Meaning, Gehazi, lift up your eyes and see what's happening. 
See what's happening right now. This foreigner, this commander of our rival nation has just been converted. Think about what's going on here. And what could happen when he goes back? I mean, what if, what if Naaman brings revival to his nation? Hmm? What if he goes back and the king is converted? What if he goes back and stops the war against us? Think of how many lives could be saved, Gehazi, if Naaman goes back with the message of grace. And if we take his money now, If we take it now, he may get the gospel message confused. He may think his money had something to do with his healing and transformation. Let's ask, what did Gehazi lack? What did he he not have? Here it is. Gehazi lacked a global vision for the message of grace. He lacked a global vision for the gospel. That's what it was. And you can see this through the meaning of his name. You see, Gehazi's name means literally valley of vision. Valley of vision or lack of vision. A Gehazi is a person where God's global vision goes to die. Elisha is lifting up his eyes. He's seeing what God is doing all over the world. Elisha was seeing how God wanted to change society, bring nations together, maybe reconcile people groups. And Elisha was living in accordance with that. See, Elisha was saying, there may be a time where we receive the money, your clothes or vineyards. There may be a time for that. Oh, but it's not now. It's not now. Now's the time to look outward. Look outward to what God wants to do globally in our midst, see. But Gehazi's vision for what is church, in a sense, his church, his ministry, his life, was what he wanted it to be, was different. It was different. Out of line with God's, out of line with his leadership. Gehazi's saying, what about us? What about our needs? The needs of our company, Elisha, right? If the needs of our people aren't being taken care of, Elisha, how are we supposed to make it? I mean, you're spending your money and time and energy and resources thinking about people outside our little group here, Elisha. Right? You're focused on reconciling people of other races, Elisha. See, Gehazi shows he's never really gotten it. He's never really gotten it. That his heart wasn't in the place God wanted it. And here's the irony. Oh, though Naaman was the leader, a leader, Naaman was a leader, what did he call himself? A servant. Right, yeah. But Gehazi, Though Gehazi was a servant, he thought he ought to be the one calling the shots, right? He thought his master had missed it. It was his job to go and fix all the stuff Elisha was too dumb to figure out, right? So he goes behind Elisha's back. He gets the other attendants on his side and involved in his little plot. (laughs) And in his mind, he tries to force Elisha to do what he thinks Elisha ought to have done. And where did all of this come from? Oh, from the valley of vision valley of vision he lacked a global vision for the gospel and it caused him to look internally at his own needs but listen man god wants to meet your needs that's what we've been saying break every chain right god wants to meet your needs wants to heal you wants to set you free but why so you can export that to the world you will be my witnesses right when the holy spirit comes where here yeah there and everywhere is the beatles saying export out of the world you know the quickest way to make yourself miserable Uh, just start talking about how your needs aren't getting met (laughs) when i focus on my needs my feelings my wants uh when that person said that to me i'm miserable i'm miserable i get depressed and discouraged in my marriage when i think about whether carrie is meeting my needs which deserve really to be met day in and day out with enthusiasm and energy (laughs) 
Think about how many times she's missed it. Man, I'm miserable. Our marriage is a mess for me. I begin to spiral down. But when I think about her needs, right? Her needs and how few they are. (laughs) And how I can meet her needs. What happened? Oh, now, man, I can bring my resources to bear on that. Marriage is exciting. It's exciting. It's electric. And when my eyes are lifted up like Jesus told me in his gospel to see the world ripe for harvest, now my spirit soars. See, Elisha's eyes were on the world. Gehazi's eyes were only on his own needs. Where are yours? Where are yours? Elisha's words show us not that it's either or, but it's a priority. It's an order of priority here. It's an order of priority, see, in God's kingdom. You have many needs. So does a church. And we want to meet all your needs here. Matter of fact, I lay in bed awake at night. This is where I about doggone go neurotic. Thinking about all the people's needs I can meet. Man, how's their marriage doing? How's their kid doing? Man, what's going on with that person in the hospital, see? But one need that is irreplaceable is to have a global vision for the gospel and for God's church, see? Now, that's the first mark of a heart that's missed God, lacking vision there. But the second mark, quickly, of a heart that's missed God can be seen in what Gehazi calls Naaman. In contrast uh, to Naaman, who identifies himself with the people of Israel, who, who puts himself on the same level as the people he once disdained, look at what Gehazi calls Naaman now. He says this, what? Aramean. Well, what's he doing? He's calling out the man's race. He's calling out his race. He's got latent racism lurking in his heart. And what does his racism now empower him to do? It justifies his decision for exploiting Naaman. He tells a carefully crafted lie designed to exploit Naaman. He's not for me, he says. It's for my poor ministry friends over here, right? You know, it's for the kids in the youth group, uh, Naaman, right? See, his racism and his lies have taken on spiritual clothing, spiritual undertones. It's awful. It's heartbreaking. Again, look at the contrast. Naaman said, there's no difference between me and someone else of another race or faith. We're all in need of the grace of God. But Gehazi has said, these people, they're the bad people, and they deserve what's coming to them. Now, it's even a little bit understandable. I mean, who has been raiding Gehazi's land? Naaman right? Who's been plundering his people, leading an army against him? Naaman. And that's why he says, oh, my master has been too easy on him. He thought he deserved hardness. See, a person with that skin color had hurt him in the past, and he couldn't let it go. He lies. He manipulates. And in the end, though, all his schemes surface, and he's caught. What happens to him? Well, in the ultimate twist, the ultimate irony, the ultimate contrast in the story, Gehazi becomes the leper Naaman once was. He got the leprosy that Naaman once had. Now, it's easy to read this, hear this, and think, what a nasty God. You know, what, a, what kind of a tit-for-tat deity is this? It's kind of, it's kind of harsh a God, right? And the answer is No. <laughs> No. Well, what's going on? There are many things in this world that are unfair and unjust, aren't there? There are. Many things that are wrong with the world. And one of the most unjust things I can think of is that a person with a beautiful soul and a beautiful heart has an ugly, diseased, or crippled body. And one of the most unfair things in the world, if not even more unfair, is that some people have cruel, wicked, 
evil souls, evil insides, and their bodies are beautiful, carefree, right? Uh, Perfect on the outside. Their ugly souls aren't reflected in who they are on the outside. And sometimes a person's beauty, who they are on the inside, isn't reflected in who they are on the outside. It's not fair. But if God were to make it right, then every person with an evil, ugly, cruel, and wicked soul would have a body to match. And every person with a kind and beautiful and loving, generous soul would have a body to match. See, can you see what God's doing here? At one place, at one time in history, God is putting the world right. He's putting the world right. He is making clear to the world who is who. Who's who? Naaman has been humbled. His racism's gone. He's generous. He's about to go back and be honest and brave. And God is bringing his body to match his soul. And he was making who Gehazi was visible on the outside. You got a problem with that? (laughs) I hope not. I hope that we'd all want the world to be a place where God put things right. And one day, God will. One day he will. And this is one place where God is warning the world and warning you, warning us, and saying, one day, I will bring everything to light. Who you are on the inside will be visible for all to see on the outside. All the beautiful will be, will be revealed. All the ugly will be revealed. He says, and I'm starting in seed form right now. Right now. And the best way we can see how that's going to happen and how we, we in the end, can have a heart that finds God and doesn't miss God is not just through looking at Naaman or Gehazi, but through finally, number three, the final character, the slave. Slave. Let's ask, how did this whole story get started? What launched this chain of events? And the answer is, perhaps the unlikeliest of heroes in all the Bible. She appears only briefly in the story, but her role is crucial. She is the little Hebrew slave girl that Naaman's soldiers captured in one of their military raids into Israel. She appears only in two verses, and this is what they say about her. It says, Now bands of raiders had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet is in Samaria he would cure him of his leprosy. And the Hebrew word here for little girl likely means a pre-adolescent girl, probably about 10 to 13 years old. She has been ripped away from her home, turned into a domestic slave. And if you know anything about war from that time period, you know it was fairly brutal. Her parents were likely killed in front of her eyes. She was also quite possibly abused and raped by the soldiers who took her captive. Here's the point. She is at the absolute bottom of the world. Her family is gone. Her life is over. She's a young female in a patriarchal culture with no rights, no money. Her future has been robbed and put to death. And who, above all else, was responsible for all that had happened to her? The head of the army of Aram, a man named Naaman, in whose very house she's now forced to work and look at him every day. So how would she respond? How did she respond? Well, we can tell from verse 3 how she didn't respond when she heard that her master, the one who had basically put her life to an end, had contracted leprosy. She didn't say this. Ha! Serves him right. Uh, Another toe fell off today. How interesting, right? Finally, God's looking down on me. I know how he could be healed, but I'm not going to help the one who ruined my life. He doesn't do that. Is that how she responded? No. 
Look at what she said. If only my master would go. There's not just information just being choked out over begrudging teeth. Right, no. She says, if only he would go. There's compassion and empathy there. How could she do this? And the answer is, she had paid the price to forgive. What do, you, what, is it, Morgan, what do you mean she paid the price? Well, listen, when someone really wrongs you, someone's got to pay to make it right. This past week in my own home, my son, one of my many sons, many sons had Father Morgan, right? Uh, my son got a church joke for there, some of you there. Uh, he got a new indoor basketball hoop, one of those things that hangs over the door. And we, we, we warned him and his cohorts uh, not to play too hard and, and reminded him that this was, in fact, a house and not a gym. And, but after dinner one night this week, uh, we were sitting down there and we heard a crash and a thud and an uh-oh Uh, from upstairs we go up and we see the hoop we see a chair and a hole in a door as it turns out they had been taking turns jumping off the chair across the room in a slam dunk contest and one of our little blessings had gone with enough force to knock a hole in the door now how does the door get fixed Hmm? even if they say they're sorry the hole is still there right Either they pay, or I pay. But to fix the hole, someone's got to pay. It's going to cost someone. And if that's true on a small scale with hallway doors and fender benders, how much more so with real wrong and real hurt and real pain? When you're hurt by someone, what's going to make it right? Someone's going to have to pay the price to make it right. Now, you, if you're hurt, you can make that person pay right. You could talk poorly about them behind their back. You could treat them coldly, not respond to emails and texts as a way of showing them you're you know, dissatisfied with their behavior. You could dehumanize them. They're just a this or she's just a that. Or you could pay. You could forgive. But it's costly. There's a price there, right? Now, imagine the price. It would have to be paid by a 13-year-old slave girl whose parents had been killed in front of her, likely been abused, and forced to look every day at the man responsible for it all. Imagine the price she would have had to pay, not just to get the words out, but with compassion, right? Either she, can you see, could suffer and forgive Naaman at her own expense, or she could make Naaman suffer while she withheld his healing. But either way... A choice was going to have to be made. Same is true in our lives. And she, we see, made the choice to pay for his healing. Naaman had a suffering servant in his life. Suffering servant. Servant, one that bore the suffering in her own body, in her own soul, so that he could be freed and healed. Now, is that beginning to sound familiar? (laughs) It should. It should. Because one day, many years later, Another suffering servant came along, another deliverer who took the form of a bondservant of a slave. And like this little girl, he was separated from his father. Jesus Christ came as an outsider to this world. He was abused, suffered at our hands. He was tortured and nailed to a cross. And as the only innocent one in our story, hung dying, he could have left, right? He could have called angels to come down and rescue him and free him, but he didn't. He stayed where he was in that house, so to speak, and he paid the price for our healing. Father, he said, forgive them, forgive them. Our leprosy went to him. His healing came to us. 
He became our ugliness, all of our ugly souls, so that his beauty could become ours, so that we Gehazis could become Naaman's. You know what the word Naaman means, right? It means pleasantness or pleasing, that we could become pleasing to God, pleasing to God. What does 1 Peter 2 say? He himself bore our sins and his body on the, tr- on the cross, that we might die to sins, live for righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. And you can be today. Final question. How can you, how can we have a heart like Naaman's? It's humble, wise, and free. Look at the ultimate suffering servant who suffered for you. His name is Jesus. Let's go to him now, church, as the band comes up. Let's embrace him now. Let him soften and change our heart and our soul. Lord Jesus, we just come to you now. And above all, we acknowledge you as the hero of history the hero of our lives, the hero of the Bible. Thank you for these themes and these truths. May we appropriate them and be free. Lord, our hearts desire to meet you and not miss you. Thank you for giving us a suffering servant. Didn't come in power. He came in weakness. We go to you the same this morning. In Jesus' name.